May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dacio Campo turned 19 years old on October the 6th of this year. She lives with her mother and her father and her sister in Chicago, Illinois. They're a working class family. Not a lot of stuff, but a lot of love for one another. And just regular sort of people. On October 6th, on Daisy's birthday, though, her father did what he often does for his two daughters. He would um, get a card, and he'd stop at, the, uh, at a card store, pick up a card, and then stop at a local carryout. And he picks up two lottery tickets, and he sticks them in the card and then leaves it for her on the counter. And that morning, on October the 6th of this year, Daisy heads into the kitchen and sees her card. Father's already taken off, left for work. So she sort of sleepily opens it and reads the card, smiles at the tender sentiment on the inside, and then kind of with, you know, a bit of uh, whatever, <laughs> started scratching off this little scratch-off lottery ticket. And the first one was a, a loser, didn't even win a dollar. And then she scratched off the second one, and she nearly fell on the floor with a heart attack <laughs> at 19. She picked up the phone, and with trembling hands, she called her dad on the phone. And she said to him, you're not going to believe this, I won. He said, what, you won? She's not, well, the one of the lottery tickets was a winner. And he said, really, how much, $500? She said, no, $4 million. Now, if I had been her dad, I would have said, you didn't scratch both of them, did you? You know, that second one. <laughs> but no, he doesn't. He, he's, can you imagine that, 19 years old, and, you know, open up a birthday card, and inside, $4 million. A reporter asked her, so was this your best birthday present ever? <laughs> I wonder if she slapped him, you know, like. Well, she, he says to her, what, what do you think you'll do with that money? Sweet girl, it sounds like. She says, you know, I think what I'll do is buy my mom and dad a new house so that the, they have a, a home to live in and they don't have to worry about that in their retirement. And then I think I'll take my, the rest of the money and, you, you know, use it for my college education because I want to be a nurse. I want to help uh, in a pediatrics unit. Sounds like a really sweet girl that she would do something like that. But, but the reporter, he couldn't help, you know, this is going to change your life. We have this thought, don't we, that good fortune portends good things. That when a good fortune comes our way, that only good things, will, good outcomes will come from it. And so you're a young lady in high school and just thinks, if only, if only that young man would, would notice me. If only he would pay attention. Or the other way, of a young man, if only she would give me a chance. Sometimes we go into a doctor's office, and if only that medical diagnosis was good, just tell me there's nothing to worry about. And some of us feel that way about a new job or a new house, a new opportunity at work, a new promotion. If only, if only this thing comes through for me, well, then things will be great. Or maybe it's a child. If, if only we could get pregnant and have a child. I mean, there's good history of that, isn't there? Abraham and Sarah, Hannah in the Old Testament. If only, if only we could have that child. If only I could get my book published. <laughs> you know, if only I could get this client to sign with us. If, if only this thing happens, well, then everything will be great. If only my ACT scores are this high, you know. If only I get into that college that I want to get into. If only this thing happens... Then comes the good life. Then comes the good life. Then I'll be able to live 
the life I've always wanted to live. I've discovered something about myself and about other people. And that is that we all have the if-onlys. You know, that we all tend to want to live in the future. In, in this, this sort of future that we describe for ourselves and kind of craft for ourselves, the if only this happens, then this. If only something happens, then I'll be fulfilled. It's always something out in front of us. And here's the thing. It's not new to us. This condition, this human condition, has been around for a long time. In the days of Jesus, it existed. The if only was different. It was sort of a corporate if only. I'm sure there were little individual ones, you know. You know, somebody who lives on, what, Fifth Street in Jerusalem probably has an if only, you know, whatever. But I mean this in a sort of a national corporate if only. If only God would do what the prophets had promised that he would do. If only God would deliver us like he has promised. If only he would come and rescue us. In the day of Jesus, Israel has already lived under nearly 400 years of oppression. The big players on the world political stage have changed. They've come and gone. But every one of them did the sort of same thing. They would use the land and the people in what we call Israel or Palestine, and they would oppress them. They would abuse them. They would, they would um, harass them. They, they would put heavy burdens upon the people that they didn't. And they would, they would make life very burdensome, if not um, impossible. The current manifestation in the time of Jesus is, of course, the Roman Empire. If only God would deliver us from these Romans. Put differently, if only God would become king of Israel once again. Well, then we could live the good life. And this was sort of this common thought, this common thread, if only God would deliver us from Rome. Now, there were people who had strong opinions about how this would happen. They, 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 some people thought that there would be a real need for participation. In fact, the prophets had said so. Unless you repent and turn, you'll be destroyed. And so the corollaries too. If only we had to do something, or if only we could do the thing we needed to do. And you had people that would say things like, well... What we need to do is raise up an army and fight these Romans. We will drive them from our land. God will become king when the Romans are driven out at the tip of a sword. If only the people would become the warriors they need to be, we could drive them out. There were other people who said, no, no, no. Rome's really not that bad. Why don't you just live your sort of spiritual life, let them sort of take care of the political stuff, and we could all be happy. This was a very small minority of people in Israel. And not surprisingly, they're the people who were really rich. They had a vested interest in Rome staying on right there. And so they would just say, hey, you know, we'll just let Romans do what they do. We'll do what we do. Well, of course they thought that. They controlled everything. They weren't under the oppression. But as I said, a very small minority. There was another group that said, you know what we need to do? It's just like move out away from all of the, the sort of entertainments of the world. We need to go out and, and live in a cave as a community, a community dedicated to holiness. These caves existed out by the Dead Sea. In fact, they kind of uh, these little communities who lived out there stored all their stuff in a library and then and forgot about it. You know, they died off or whatever. And and a couple thousand years later, their libraries were discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls. This community, we're going to go out and live away from. We need to be true, holy people, and the only way we can do that is to get away from the world. It was a fourth group. This group said, you know, the real way 
to be holy is to just have no moral dealings with the unholy world. We'll live as God's faithful people in the world, but not be of it. Now, they were very, very close to the kingdom, but still missed it. If only God would become king, varied only in how we would bring about this coming kingdom. How would it be that the people would usher the kingdom in? And Jesus shows up and he preaches a different message from all four. He says that the kingdom can be among us right now. In fact, it is among us right now. And he calls people to live as faithful subjects of God's kingdom in the here and now. That's what the Sermon on the Mount really does. A call to people to live under God's rule in the present reality. Now, Jesus has been going around doing some amazing things, healing people, casting out demons, and he has become quite famous. In fact, uh, Matthew says in chapter 4 that great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. His fame has spread all over. Huge crowds are following him. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, the crowds are still there. Will you take your bulletin and look at it with me, would you, just as we get there? Jesus is, has, has gathered, there's crowds around him, and in chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. He sees the crowd around him, and he goes up into the mountain, I think, to get away from the crowd. Now this generally is viewed, people think that the Sermon on the Mount was preached to the crowd. I think it's not preached to the crowd, but preached to the disciples, because look what it says. And he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he spoke to them. He speaks to his disciples and taught them, saying, and he goes on to give what we call the Beatitudes. Now before I get into this, just one little caveat of information. When you see the phrase, kingdom of heaven, we tend to think of heaven as that place you go when you die. So Jesus is saying, no, it's not that at all. For him, kingdom of heaven is a cipher for kingdom of God. What he means is the place in which God rules and dwells. This kingdom community, we might even say, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God, not um, not the place you go when you die. Think about it like this. Um, for instance, sometimes we will say things like the Pentagon said today or the White House said today. Buildings don't talk. <laughs> you know that, right? Building, no, when we understand what that means. When the Pentagon's, this is the Secretary of Defense. When the White House speaks, it's the President speaking. It's, it's the, they don't do that, it, it, the, the, the one who's inside it. So the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. Now look at the text again with me. Verse 3, you see where we are here? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I think those, those uh, Beatitudes hold together are a little different than the way verse 11 and 12 do. I want you to remember, though, that these Beatitudes, they sort of sound very religious. Blessed are, right? Blessed, a very religious connotation. But they're not just like that. It might even say... Happy are you, though that kind of messes up a little bit too because of modern psychology. Maybe you could say it like this, the happiest and wisest people are those who do these things. Those who who want to live the good life. Happy and wise are you 
when you are poor in spirit. Happy and wise are you when you uh, are meek, and so on down the line. But look at this really closely because I missed this for a really long time. Look at the very first one, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I wish you had a pencil here because you could underline this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now slide down to verse 10, the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The exact same word-for-word phrase. Exactly the same. Theirs is the kingdom. But the ones in the middle are different. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see the future tense going on there. We move from present tense reality to future tense. So it goes present tense, then future, 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 future. I lost count. And then the last one, back to present tense. As if there are two bookends that are kind of sandwiching the others in between. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the bookends around which the others fit. Well, you say, that's all good and well, but what do you mean? What does that have to do with me? Well, it's like this. I think what Jesus is saying in blessed are the poor in spirit, I think he's saying, you understand what poor means, right? To have nothing. Poor in spirit is, is is a spiritual reality, an inward reality of that. Someone who has nothing to bring. Blessed are the poor spiritually who realize and recognize that they have nothing. They have no claim. They have no claim of goodness. They don't come to God and say, well, you know, after all, I was born into this family. I I don't have any claim. It's not like I go to God and say, after all, I have given this much. I have said these many prayers. I was baptized by this person. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Nothing. You come to God with nothing. I have nothing to bring. I am impoverished. Coming to God with an, an awareness of absolute, utter dependency. Because I have nothing to bring. Imagine when you come to communion. I, I hope this strikes you often. That when you come and you kneel like a beggar. And you put out your hands like a beggar. Nothing to give. Nothing to offer. And the body of Christ in your hand is given. As a gift. No claim at all. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They, they begin with an understanding of absolute, abject poverty. And on the other bookend, and they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're willing to be per- persecuted. I'm kidding, that word out. Willing to be persecuted for doing the right thing. For being the right sort of person. This is at the other end. So if you come with nothing and you're willing to suffer everything, it's a way of saying those people whose ultimate reality, whose only real meaning in life is God, their life is totally built around God. Bringing nothing, willing to suffer everything. God is central to their being. Their present tense reality, that theirs is, to such people as this belongs the kingdom. They are right now living in the kingdom of God, under the rule of God. Not the if only someday down the future, but in the present tense. Now what about the ones in the middle? Look at these. You have all of these blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
I think Jesus is saying, for those who build their entire life around God, it works out in a real ethical way. You can see the visible manifestation of these people. You know what it looks like? They mourn over the brokenness in the world. They look at the brokenness of the world and it breaks their hearts. They don't judge the world. They don't say, oh, you know, you're going to hell in a handbasket. You know, but they, they're born. They, they, they're, they're, they're sad over that. It breaks their heart to see the brokenness and the oppression and the lives of people who, who bear this reality. They shall be comforted. What is he saying? It won't always be like this. They're not bullies. They don't fight and take. They don't oppress people. They give. They're meek. They're gentle. They don't have to take because they know in the end God will give them everything. Guess who gets the earth? The meek, the gentle, not the bullies, not the ones who take. Paradoxically, these people want more of God. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. Having experienced God as ultimate reality, what do they want? They want more of God. And they pursue Him. They hunger after Him. They get up on Sunday morning early and go to church. Just like y'all. Hey. They want more and more and more. Sometimes they even pick up a, a Bible in between Sundays. Maybe they, they listen to a little devotional podcast or something like that. They, they want more. They are merciful. They are merciful because they know they themselves need mercy. Without the mercy of God, they would be crushed. And so when they see other people, they extend the same sort of mercy. They're pure of heart. They want clean lives. Oh, the beginning to the way we open up our Eucharist is about the way we should open up our life. The Eucharist teaches us everything about what it means to live as the people of God. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. This is what the people of God want. They want pureness of heart. And they work for peace and reconciliation because this is what love does. It reconciles. It does not divide. It brings together. It heals. Jesus is not giving us a new Decalogue, a new Ten Commandments. He's showing us what the law was intended to do. And that was to make God our ultimate reality and to have that worked out in an everyday, very work-a-day ethical way. It makes us like God. Not like gods, not thunderbolt-throwing, you know, all-powerful, spectacular gods. It makes us like God in character, that we become like God in the world. Dacio Campo opened up her birthday card and got a $4 million surprise in there. And the reporter said, it'll change her life. I suppose it changed some circumstances in her life. It's going to change her address for sure, right? And if it changes your address, it changes a lot of things about it. But I wonder if it would really change her life. I don't know her. I wondered if it would change mine. I wonder if you suppose it would change yours. And I wonder, I wonder if our lives are really so much about the if only or about the right now, what is. About the fact that we are living in the presence of the kingdom of God now. And if changing our lives is about changing our circumstances or changing our ultimate reality. 
I've told you this before, but there's this great passage in Merton's, uh, Thomas Merton's autobiography where he's struggling with his future. He doesn't know what to do. He, he's, he's torn between being a university professor and being a monk. He doesn't know, and he's walking with a friend through New York City, and he's telling him all this stuff. You know, what, what should I do? I don't know what to do with my life. Should I be a, a professor or a monk? And, or maybe just a writer. Or, you know, he's got all these different things going on. And his friend said, well, what do you really want to do with your life? And Merton's, you know, he's flabbergasted. He's like, I just told you. I don't know. And, and he says... I suppose I should want to be a good Catholic. And his friend says, no, that's not the right answer. What you should say is, I want to be a saint. Oh, I want to be a saint. What does a saint look like? It looks like somebody whose ultimate reality is God and that lives out in their lives in a regular way. And they want and need nothing more. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.